welcome to the Hearts Entwined podcast. In this podcast, we'll be having discussions around the secrets which attract lasting, healthy, fulfilling relationships, creating a healthy mindset, and what women should know and understand about men. Introducing your host, Lynn Smith, the Queen of Hearts, relationship expert, trainer, speaker, and best-selling author of the Cupid's Bow Technique. Lynn's mission is to have a positive impact in reducing divorce, domestic violence, and suicide. Welcome to the Hearts Entwined podcast. This is your host, Lynn Smith, the Queen of Hearts. And today we're going to be discussing what the true meaning of self-love is. And I've got a brilliant expert. Her name is Jana Wilson. She's the author of Wise Little One. And she's also the founder of the Emotional Healing System. So welcome, Jana. Thank you so much, Lynn. It's so a pleasure to be here with you. So what is the true meaning of self-love. Before we get stuck into that, Jana, perhaps you could share a little bit about your own story and what's got you doing what you're doing now. Oh, I would love to. Thank you, Lynn. Um, Well, I grew up in, there's a test, I don't know if you're familiar with it, Lynn, called the ACE test, Adverse Childhood Experiences. There's only 10 questions, right, in in that questionnaire, and it's for clinicians to ascertain where a a patient, a client is based on their developmental trauma. Out of those 10 questions, I score 10 out of all 10. Mm. Um, I I grew up in a lot of um, chaos, domestic violence, a mentally ill mother, an alcoholic father. Um, I'm 57 years old. So back then, you know, I think our parents got married really too young. Yes, I agree. And certainly we know parenting doesn't come with a manual. So they were pretty messed up from their own developmental trauma, right? And they just pass it down. It becomes intergenerational trauma. And um, my mom, like I said, was mentally ill. She, when I was eight years old, put a shotgun to mine and my brother's head. Um, yeah. So we, we beyond just watching the abuse between my mother and father, him beating her and You know, there was also abuse and shame from the community because we were labeled white trash, right? The people who behave like they belong on an episode of Jerry Springer. (laughs) Ouch. Um, Yeah. So my parents were very emotionally stunted, you know, arrested, developed. They they were two um, really young adults still behaving as children and trying to raise children and so it was a recipe for disaster. I endured sexual abuse as a child, verbal abuse, physical abuse. I mean, it was it was pretty intense. At 12, um, I was, I think, had suicide ideation and, uh, and during a um, domestic violence, you know, between mom and dad. I think it takes a child into so much fear that they feel they're going to die. Yeah. So I'm praying to God, save me, save me. And all of a sudden I had what's called an NDE, a near death experience where I was pulled out of my body and I was shown, you know, I was one with the cosmos. It was a really surreal experience for a 12 year old for anybody, but certainly for a 12 year old, I felt such peace, such love, such comfort. I didn't want whatever was happening. I didn't want to go back to how it was before. And um, I asked, what is happening? 
And I was told, those are not your parents. I am. That that is not your life. This is. And then I was back in my body. That experience, that mystical experience, you know, woke my soul up to a level of understanding things that no one at my age really understood. So I became what's called a disruptor in the family system, right? Of the family of origin. I was the one that spoke about the proverbial elephant in the living room, right? And it upset the apple cart, of course, and and everybody just wanted me to shut my mouth. But what happened was it was really pushing me on this trajectory of becoming the teacher that I am today. It was standing up to those parents, standing up to the dysfunction, to, you know, the codependency, to really calling out things that were unhealthy. And um, of course, in my early years, it, no one was paying me for it. So everybody resented it. <laughs> um, but it certainly put me, catapulted me on this journey of learning to love myself and listen to my intuition and know the truth of who I am, that I wasn't this daughter of these two emotionally stunted people, that I was much bigger than that. Wow. 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 Such a lot of information to take on board. What was your actual sort of 12 year old's understanding of what was going on at that time? I mean, obviously you've got probably in hindsight, better view of what that is now, but at that age. Oh, well, you know, children, they can become a (laughs) know-it-all. So I felt, you know, and I, I still feel this, I know this, I had a direct link to what we call God. So I was hearing, I was asking questions, you know, I was raised in the Bible Belt of America, very Southern, very fundamentalist. If you don't believe the way they believe, you know, it's hell or high water, you know, you're, and you know, so I started challenging them and I was kicked out of church at Sunday school because I said, you know, I don't believe God told me that you don't have to be a Christian to go to heaven. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. <afraid> you. <laughs> so I was told to leave. It was very Christian of them. They kicked me out. I had to walk home a couple of miles in the heat, crying, asking God, why did that happen? And you know, so like I said, I became a disruptor. I started to call out hypocrisy and I began to see things that no one my age saw. And I was going into higher states of consciousness. Of course, I didn't realize that at the time because I was just a child, but through nature and through this connection, my trauma was a gift. The gift of my trauma was this deep, deep connection to spirit to what is not visible, right? I began to make that more real than the known reality of the material world. And so I was living in my imagination. So of course I started to manifest. Um, I manifested, our family loved Elvis Presley. So my dad was an Elvis impersonator. And so I grew up, you know, just Elvis was the king, you know, he was like a demigod in our home. And so it, um, eight years old, I manifested to go to the concert. And then not only did we go to the concert after the concert, we were the only car they let in through the barricade, my mom and I, and Elvis invited us up to his suite. (laughs) Yeah. Incredible. I didn't go. And here's why, because during the concert, I couldn't leave. I was so transfixed on Elvis that I wet my pants. 
I couldn't go to the bathroom. So then I was worried that I stunk and I smelled like pee. So I couldn't meet the king like that. So in my innocence, I remember I told my mom, it's okay, mommy, we'll come see him next year. He'll invite us up next year. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So I did, you know, the trauma did connect me to spirit, a very strong connection to my intuition. And then also to, you know, really manifesting a life of my dreams. I believe in what Einstein said, imagination is more important than knowledge because it'll take you farther than knowledge ever would. I think those of that have tested that know that to be very true. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm living proof of it. Me too. Definitely. So when it comes to what the true meaning of love or self-love is, what's your experience of that that you can share with the audience? I had an experience in 2015, I think that culminated this idea of self-love You know, so much in popular culture, especially since the 60s and transpersonal psychology and, you know, all of that began to, you know, create momentum. We wanted, you know, there was this idea of confidence and self-love, but it's more than just a bubble bath, as we know, and a day at the spa, right? Um, In 2015, I had been doing a lot of work with my inner child, which is just our feeling self. When we say inner child, The way that I was trained is that in the first seven years of our development, that is the child and they are all emotion. There's no intellect formed, right? So they personalize everything, everything's through their emotional lens. And I, um, yeah, I think it's called the imprint period, isn't it? In our lives. Yeah. Yeah. And so in 2015, I had an experience. I was single. I'm 49 years old. I'm, you know, wanting to attract my beloved in my life and, but, you know, keep getting the message, just fall in love with you and you'll be an attraction for that. You know, trust the universe has your back. And so I was doing all this internal reparenting, loving my inner child, connecting with my inner child. And so I came up with six ways of connecting and loving self-love. So the first is emotionally. So my little girl, my inner child, you know, didn't get her needs met. There was a lot of neglect growing up and she really loves words of affirmation. She loves to be told she's a good girl and I'm proud of her. And, you know, here I am 57 years old and there's still a little five-year-old in me that wants to hear that. Not from anyone else, only from me. Yeah. Right. Because if it's not a match, if if my husband says to me, you inspire me, you know, I admire you and I'm not telling myself I inspire me and I admire myself. It's going to fall on deaf ears, right? Because we really don't care what other people think only if we agree with them. Absolutely. And it can feel incongruent, can't it? Exactly. So we can't take the compliment. We deflect it, you know, because it's not a match, right? So emotionally, every day, as I'm brushing my teeth, I created a tiny habit. And I do these self-love, these six ways of self-love throughout the day. But the emotional one, I brush my teeth. I talk to myself in the mirror. I have a picture of little Jana that I keep nearby. And she looks very sad, as you can see. And she's only about four in this picture. I put it on the wallpaper on my smartphone. I look at myself. I connect 
with that core essence of my emotional self, which is little Jana. She's pure. She's innocent. She deserves love, right? She's not the bad girl that made choices and, you know, yeah. and, and adulthood and teenage years and college. The second way I love myself is physically. So every day I'm asking myself, how can I eat nutritious, you know, food and move my body and show myself I love myself. And even if my body's not where I want it to be, how can I speak lovingly to it in the mirror, you know, and tell myself, you know, that I love and appreciate my body. Our bodies are so intelligent. They contain the heart, which is 5,000 times stronger than the cranium, the brain. So we really want to honor and love ourselves physically. Then the third way is spiritually. So how am I, what devotional practices do I have that show me that I love myself? I spend quality time doing nothing in meditation, being still and silent every morning. That's a, a way that I show myself I love myself, right? I'm connecting to spiritual guidance, to the universe, to connecting to, you know, that source of inspiration and creativity. Nature is another way of doing it. The fourth way is my relationships. How am I, what are, you know, we're always living in the mirror of relationship. So is my husband and my relationship mirroring back to me, the respect, the love, the devotion I give myself? Yes. Are my girlfriends, are my clients, are my, my children, my, my grandson, are all my relationships. And if they're not, then I take full responsibility to clean up the space and set boundaries and advocate for myself. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's the way I love myself. Then organizationally children thrive and organize environments. So if my car is messy and my house is messy and I'm not organized, children don't feel safe. They don't feel stable. So I need to create stability for myself as an adult, a healthy adult by making things organized and stable around me. Right. And then financially, Am I financially, you know, children also thrive in homes where the lights are on and the bills are paid. I know because I didn't experience that as a child. And so, um, you know, financially, am I debt free? Am I saving? Am I organized, you know, with my finances? So those are the six ways that we love ourselves. Wow. So self, self-love is more than just, you know, like I said, a bubble bath and you know, saying some affirmations in a mirror. Definitely, it's a lot more than that. And um, I think a lot of people struggle sometimes with um, looking in the mirror and believing they can say to themselves that they love themselves because it doesn't sound congruent because they, they genuinely don't feel in that moment that they properly love themselves. But I like the fact that you used the picture of yourself as the younger you because I think that's probably easier to love the younger version of ourselves, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they're innocent. They're pure. You look at yourself and you think, you know, your story better than anyone. When I look at that picture, I think, bless her heart. If she was here, I would just be devoted to her and attentive to her and loving her because she suffered enough. So that's why I love this. You know, it's never too late to have a happy childhood. It's on my <laughs> website. I actually yeah. tweaked it and I said, now's the time for the happy childhood. 
right? Because, because I think yeah. we always do have that inner child within us all the time that we're carrying along with us on our life journey, don't we? Absolutely. I mean, we, you know, there's, like I said, the inner child is our emotions. So in order to become an emotionally intelligent adult, we, you know, it, this, re, this idea of reparenting. So in reparenting, you know, there's many things outside of us that trigger us and other people, right. That push our buttons and that's called shadow. We, we cast and project these shadows we don't see about ourselves onto others. This is the work of Carl Jung, the Swiss psychologist. And so this is what I trained formally in. And so I use that as kind of the wake up, like, okay, somebody was disrespectful or dismissive and it pushed my buttons and got me angry. So then I, I go, okay, well, I'm helpless over that person being dismissive. You know, if I want to try to tell them they can't speak to me, that, then I become very controlling right? And, and manipulative because I really have no control over other people. No. So then, right. So then I say, okay, dismissive and disrespectful. These are two qualities I want to look at within myself. So I ask myself, am I that way to myself? And then I'm asking really that child, my emotions, right? That got hurt because somebody was dismissive. So I go in and I ask little Jana, you know, have I been dismissive and disrespectful to you? And then immediately she'll show me, you know, I also have impressions where I begin to see where I've, you know, we have 50 to 70,000 thoughts a day where I'm thinking dismissive or disrespectful things towards myself. So of course it's going to trigger me if somebody else is dismissive or disrespectful because I'm doing that to myself. How dare them? I'm doing it. You can't do it. <laughs> exactly. Right? I think it's yeah. quite a, a challenge for some people to think that um, if somebody is, as we perceive, and it's only our perception at the end of the day, being disrespectful to, to us, um, that, you know, it's all about them. But actually, it is usually a mirror that's been held up to us to examine what, what's going on within ourselves, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's called the mirror of relationship. And this teaching actually goes way back before Carl Jung um, in the Vedas, which is five, 6,000 years old from India, the mystical teachings, they teach it's called Tatvam Asi. It means in Sanskrit, I see the other in myself and myself in the other. So everything's mirrored. This is the spiritual path, you know, to be in relationship. It's hard. It's like two pieces of coal, you know, rubbing together constantly that friction can make a beautiful diamond but only if two individuals are willing to take 100 percent responsibility for themselves otherwise you create codependency right Absolutely. I, I begin to say you made me feel and you're responsible for me and that becomes a taker and then the caretaker oh i'm so sorry i didn't mean to but I, to be a good person i must do everything to make you happy and that's toxic unhealthy relationship yeah and it, I think it's so easy for us to point the finger of blame out outside ourselves and it's much um it's much harder to sort of think hang on a minute you know what, exactly. what do I need to take away from this that's my responsibility in this situation and even if somebody is you know um giving you un unacceptable behavior um you know your part in that might be accepting it and forgiving it all the time 
Well, we don't want to spiritual bypass it. I mean, when the bottom line is we are absolute. There's five core feelings of pain in the human experience. My teacher taught me this. And she said, you learn these five feelings, Jana, and anything outside these feelings, you know, you're creating them. You're suffering and you are choosing to suffer. And here are the five feelings. Someone dies. We can't get out of life. We are going to grieve and we are going to feel sorrow. Right. Yeah. It's just a part of life. Relationships in we grieve the second heartbreak, heartache. We're going to feel heartbreak, broken and heartache when People say and do mean things like the example before disrespectful or dismissive, you know, but then here comes the next one. This is the hard one for us to accept. We are helpless over others. And if you don't think you are, you become controlling and manipulative. You have no control over other people. The only thing you have control over is your beliefs, your thoughts, your behaviors, you. And so when someone behaves a certain way, you know, there's a, a quote that says in between stimulus and response, there's space. Yeah. Right. So if you can hold that space and not react, you begin to have self-mastery over your emotions, which, you know, in scientific terms is really called self-regulation. I can regulate my stress response because let's face it, when somebody says or does something, it throws us into stress response as if a saber-toothed tigers in front of us exactly right and then we're and gonna so, have the fight or flight or freeze response to that you know because that's ingrained in our dna but that exactly tigers aren't around today but we have the same sort of responses to outside stimuli still don't we and not even outside lynn it's inside sometimes it's just a thought you're having somebody behaves they must think i'm an idiot well, you don't know if they think you're an idiot, but the way they're behaving because you are internalizing it with a story. Now that creates the, the suffering. Now I'm telling myself a story. You're treating me a certain way because you think I'm an idiot. Now, I don't know that's true, but my body's being flooded with adrenaline and noradrenaline and cortisol and all the stress hormones of fight or flight. Again, as if there's a bear about to attack me just from having a thought. Yeah, and got good, very good point. Because, like you say, yeah. we do it to ourselves all the time. All the time. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, we just we, in this fight, flight, fawn response, we begin to, you know, really knock our autonomic nervous system out. We become incoherent. If if everyone had like an emotional intelligence course in in primary school right? Yes. In, in grade school, if we began to learn these five painful emotions, so I said, there's grief and sorrow, heartbreak, heartache, um, helplessness over others, fear and present danger, not fear because your false evidence appearing real, right? You're creating a story. Anxiety, for example, I'm yes. afraid this is going to happen. That's not real fear. That's just a thought you're having of a worst case scenario. That's just worrying right? about something that hasn't happened yet. Exactly. Which lo and behold, be careful what you worry about, right? You might attract it. And then the last one would be loneliness. And loneliness is different than aloneness. Loneliness is a painful core emotion. We can't get out of life without feeling. 
Think about when you've went to a restaurant recently and you saw everybody at the table of a family on their phones. And then maybe one person, not a child, say. Or or that they put the child on the phone and everybody else. There's disconnection. It creates loneliness. We want to connect with one another. There's this yearning to connect, but everybody's so disconnected in today's society because of the overstimulation of social media and the smartphones and everywhere we go, we have a cute computer in our hand. And so if we are connected to ourselves, to source, then, and we're with other people who are disconnected, it creates loneliness, Yeah, which is painful. Yeah. But aloneness is like an existential feeling of feeling totally disconnected. No matter how many people are trying to connect to you, you are cut off and disconnected. That's what leads to suicide ideation. That's what leads to extreme suffering of the human condition, right? Absolutely. And I heard a great quote that was um, about pain and suffering. And this, they said that pain is inevitable but suffering is optional, meaning that, you know, we're all going to experience pain or challenge or, uh, you know, adversity at some points in our life. But, you know, we can choose to make that a temporary thing or we can choose to opt to not make that a temporary thing and then, you know, create that optional. Are we going to suffer and be a victim to this? Exactly. And, and that what you just said is key because, you know, there people are addicted to blaming it's one of the ways we abandon our feelings our inner child and you know when we blame others we become a victim and then we triangulate right because victims need a rescuer and there's a persecutor and in the cartman drama triangle the conscious model of that triangle is that you know the victim becomes the creator i am 100 responsible for creating this experience of my life and this and the person who's who's you know persecuting me becomes the challenger the person who's pushing my buttons actually becomes a teacher you know to show me something i can't see in myself and then i don't need to run and tell a story about it which is what creates the suffering because that would pull someone else into the dynamic right um yes. the, it, which is traditionally called the rescuer but in the conscious model, it's called the coach. So if, say, somebody calls me a friend and starts telling me a story about someone, I'm going to listen enough to then turn it and ask a question. What is this here to teach you? It's happening for you, not to you. You are an empowered individual. You know, so I coach them to look for the lesson because I have no interest in triangulating and, and supporting someone in victimhood, as you said. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. You know, it's so easy. I mean, we've all been there, uh, haven't we? We've all had to learn, you know, as a result of doing the work on ourselves to to realize that, you know, I can put my hand up and say I've been, you know, in victim mode in my, in my past and, uh, you know, had those pity parties and, and wanted that sympathy from external friends and, and what have you but you know these days I know I've got my own power 100 percent. exactly Lynn and how long are you going to stay there you and I have tools now and that's what we do to help other women and men in my case and in these tools shorten the refractory 
you know, from again, stimulus and response, you know, okay, something happens. Yes, you are absolutely right. We can be a victim of something, a crime, a incident, you know, there's, but how long am I going to hold that banner of victimhood? Or am I going to begin to ask the question, what is the lesson here? We are in earth school. My childhood was filled ripe with lessons. Once I began to ask that question, I transmuted and transformed all that lemons and made lemonade, right? I began yeah. to say, hey, I'm empowered here. I have a choice to look at my childhood through the lens of victimhood or look at it through empowerment, that I must have been a pretty badass soul to have chose those parents and chose those experiences. And now what am I going to do with it? What kind of mother am I going to become? What kind of human am I going to become? What greater contribution can I live to leave to this planet as a legacy because I went through that? And that's why I wrote Wise Little One. You know, it is it is a traumatic story. And if somebody's had trauma, reading it could could, you know, resurface some of their own traumas. But I don't apologize for that, Lynn, because, you know, what we can't feel, we can't heal. Absolutely. So and we've got to bring it up. It. You know, it's not that we're saying you shouldn't feel it, but feel it and um, have the tools, knowledge, strategy to cope and deal with it in an effective, empowering way, rather than try and suppress it, which might cause illness or respond and react by lashing out at others, which obviously then creates unhealthy relationships. Right. And a person who behaves that way is only behaving that way because they don't have, they're ignorant. And I say ignorant in terms, they don't have the knowledge. They don't know. They don't know. I mean, if you don't know that, you know, the psyche, let's say is formed by all these different parts and these parts, it's normal to have a mean side of yourself and a kind side to have a happy and a sad that everything has duality in this world. And so if you don't understand, you know, you, and let's face it, a lot of people just haven't found, excuse me, an interest, I think, in digging deeper. Again, why? Because they don't know, they don't know, right? They don't know there's a better way. Um, You know, we become addicted to these kind of woe is me patterns. I think there's a great phrase that we don't know what we don't know until we do. Exactly. <laughs> it's kind of like the question. I don't, I'm when I teach, I always teach from a place of what is the question that if I were my student, I would want to be asking that they don't know to ask. Yes. Exactly. Right. So I'll say, here's the question you want to ask. Why is this important? Why are you teaching me this? Or, you know, like, what does this matter in my relationships? So we can really break it down and make it more practical. And I do that in the book. I give some practical tips. It is a memoir, but it's called a prescriptive memoir, which means that I give some prescriptions of how you can utilize some of the tools I did throughout my life and what I created in the emotional healing system so that, you know, it can support someone, um, you know, on their journey of healing. Excellent. And on that note, Jana, what is the best contact information that you can share with the audience? Should anybody want to reach out and connect with you? 
Oh, yes. Thank you for asking, Lynn. Uh, my website, janawilson.com, would be perfect. Excellent. And what final words of wisdom would you like to leave around the subject of what is the true meaning of self-love? Mm, the true meaning of self-love is to know, not to believe. You don't believe you can ride a bike. You know you can. It, belief almost implies doubt. So to know that within you is an innocent, pure, lovable, deserving child that has suffered, as Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist monk said, long enough. It's time now to rescue that child, to go back, to learn to reparent yourself, become a loving adult. And there's no greater gift you could give to yourself, to your children, to your grandchildren than to do this work. Absolutely, because otherwise the alternative is that we give our perpetrators, you know, whatever label you want to give anybody that may have caused you harm, the power to control your life in a negative way, don't we? Exactly. You want to take your power back. Fall in love with yourself. Excellent. I love your final words of wisdom and advice. And, and thank you for a very inspiring conversation, Jana. I really enjoyed it. Oh, I have too, Lynn. Thank you so much for having me. So it just leaves me to say that true love starts with opening our hearts. And until next time, goodbye for now. Thanks for listening to the Hearts Entwined podcast. You can follow Lynn via the Facebook group, Two Hearts Entwined, or search Lynn Smith, inspirational speaker at LinkedIn, or email lynn at hearts-entwined.com. That's L-Y-N at hearts-entwined.com. Remember, true love starts with opening our hearts.